I'll tell you what, it has been, um, it was a late night, and it was a long week, um, and it was an early morning, and it was busy, but I can tell you with all sincerity that there is no place that I would rather be right now than here with you. It is, it is, it is the best day of the year, and I'm glad that we get to, to spend it together, and if you are in Christ this is, this is just one day in, in the midst of all of eternity that we will spend together. This is, this is like our family, our true family, our family that, that, that we will be with forever because we are in Christ. And so what a great day to spend with, with, our, with our family. I'm, I'm, if you're a guest, we're, we're glad that you're here this morning. I see quite a few faces that aren't normally here. Excited to have my mom and my family here. I know many of you guys have been praying for my mom and asking about her. She's here, and we're, we're, we're glad that she's here this morning. And, um, and as, I, as I think about, about Christmas in this, in this season, um, I, I started, kind of started thinking about a trip that I took with my, uh, with my wife and my son, Brayson, a few months ago. We took a trip uh, to, to Philadelphia and to Washington, D.C. Uh, for kind of a little 12-year-old getaway we kind of do with, with our kids. And and uh, we, were, we went up there to see the Braves play in Philly. Then we took the train and saw the Braves play in Washington. And, uh, but while we, were, while we were in Philadelphia, uh, one of the things we had the opportunity to do, uh, we, we wanted to go see the Liberty Bell. And so if you've ever been to Philadelphia, you'll, there's this kind of like little Independence Square there. I don't think that's what it's called, but minor detail. Uh, right there by Independence Hall, we went to go see the Liberty Bell. And so as we got to the Liberty Bell, we, we, you know, we stood in line. There was a long line of people waiting to get in. And so we waited there, waited for a while, and we kind of talked about it. And there's anticipation building up. And we waited in the line. We went inside. And, and inside, there's this museum. And, and in this museum, it's probably 30, 45 minutes worth of information, videos, things you can listen to, things you can look at, things you can touch, et cetera, regarding the Liberty Bell. I never knew there was that much to know about the Liberty Bell, but we spent all this time looking and learning about the Liberty Bell. And at the very back of the exhibit, the very last thing you do is you actually go and you see the Liberty Bell, all right? And so there's all this anticipation building up to this point where this, you're, you're finally going to see the thing that you came to see, and then you kind of get in this room and the Liberty Bell's kind of just hanging there, and you kind of like, there it is. It's uh, it's the Liberty Bell. Yeah, y'all want to y'all want to take a picture, or it's just kind of like one of those moments. Like, what do you do with it? You know, you've been you've been talking about it, you've been thinking about it, but in the moment you get there and it's cool, it's old, and you see there's the crack, and and but like, you're like, okay, well, there it is. Let's move on. And at times, I kind of feel like that's how we are with Christmas to a certain extent. We have this whole Advent season where we're, 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 we're talking to our kids and our family and our, and, our, and our friends and even celebrating it in our church of talking about what kind of what Christ came to do and then we get to Christmas Day and we, we kind of think about the manger and we're like, yeah, it's, it's cool. It's a, it's, it's a good story and we, we know a lot about it, but like, what, what do we do with it? How does it apply to us? How do we... How do, we, how do we apply the manger scene? And, and honestly, there's a lot of, a lot of ways that, that we could apply 
There's lot, lots of applications of, of Christ coming and putting on flesh and dwelling among us. But this morning, I, I want to focus on one aspect of what I feel like the manger scene. Christ putting on flesh, Christ leaving heaven, putting on flesh, dwelling among us, coming to save a people from their sin. There's, there's one aspect of that story that I want to apply for us this morning found in Philippians chapter 2. So if, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Philippians chapter 2. I want to talk to this, this morning about humility. I strongly believe that as we gaze upon this birth narrative, we think about Christ dwelling among us, that among many things, it should produce a humility among Christ's people. In fact, my main point this morning is this. The primary message of Christmas is the glory of God through the humility of Christ. As we gaze upon Christ in the manger, we should respond in humility. I'll say that one more time. The primary message of Christmas is the glory of God through the humility of Christ. As we gaze upon Christ in the manger, we should respond in humility. Now, this text this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, that's where I'm going to be this morning. It isn't a traditional Christmas text, but it talks a lot uh, towards the latter half of my sermon about what Christ exactly did. And so, so, so kind of for the first few minutes, it may not feel like the biggest Christmas sermon, but hang with me and I think you'll see that it fits quite nicely as we see what Christ did for us. So hopefully now you've turned in your Bibles to Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Please follow along as I read. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you Look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and confess, and, and every tongue confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. The primary message of Christmas is the glory of God through the humility of Christ. As we gaze upon Christ in the manger, we should respond and humility. This is a message for God's people this morning. Point one, we must treasure the blessing of one-mindedness. We must treasure the blessing of one-mindedness. Let's, let's consider Paul's encouragement here. I know, I know we've got 11 verses and I don't intend to take us, take all of our time together today. But let's briefly look at what Paul is saying here. His encouragement in, in, in verse, verse 1. He's, he's highlighting everything that is true of us who are in Christ Jesus. If you are, if you are a Christian, if your hope is in, in Christ Jesus alone for salvation, 
He is your Lord. This is, this is true of you, that, that you have encouragement in Christ. Encouragement in Christ. Like the greatest encouragement that you could possibly have is found in Christ Jesus. The fact that, that your greatest need has been, met, has been met in Christ. That your sin has been paid for in Christ through no work of your own. You didn't earn it. You didn't buy it. You didn't purchase it. But, but Christ did that for you if you are in Christ Jesus? That, that you were once an enemy of God, but through the, through the desire, through the election, through, through the predestination of, of, of the Father for us, he, he chose us, he, he took enemies and made, made us in Christ his friends. And we, now we, we can say we are sons and daughters of God. That is, that is the most encouraging thing that you could possibly even fathom. There is no greater encouragement in this entire world than to know that if you are in Christ, you have been reconciled to God. Not only that, he's saying, he's speaking of this comfort, comfort from love. You know, you know, we're not, we're not just individuals whose sin has been has been dealt with, but now we kind of stand in this, this position of where we're where the father is kind of cold towards us or apathetic towards us, or he's just, as Mark Dever says, he's, he kind of stands in heaven as some sort of auditor of our lives. He loves us. Like we were once his enemies and he loves us. We, we walked with everything in us apart from Christ, contrary to the will of God. Like everything all day, every day, all we were doing was walking against God as enemies. But he has bestowed his love upon us. If, if we are in Christ, we are loved by God. There is no other validation that we need. Today, you might be looking for validation from your career, from your spouse, from your family, from your father, from the church, from anything else. And I'm telling you, if you are in Christ, know this, that you are loved by almighty God. There is no validation needed other than that. There is no other comfort in this life greater than that. But also he speaks of this participation in the Spirit. If you are in Christ, you know this, that the Holy Spirit, part of the new covenant, is that he is coming, he indwells in you. God has put his Spirit in you. Amen. What, what, a, what a great truth. This participation is a fine word, but, but, but in Greek the better word here is, is fellowship. It's, it's not like we just have like kind of this passive relationship with, with the Holy Spirit. Like we have constant fellowship with the Holy Spirit inside of us. You know, there's no greater association. There's no greater participation. There's no greater fellowship in all the world than to be able to fellowship with God. True fellowship inside of us. There's no greater. Many of us are trying to find our our identity in, 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 in sports or in work or in, or in some other group or association. Friend, Christian, if you are in Christ, you have participation with the Holy Spirit. And finally, affection and sympathy. Affection and sympathy. These are both a, a picture of God's mercy. He, he hasn't just not given us what we deserve. but We are objects of God's affections. I don't know what you got this morning or what you're going to get later today in terms of gifts or, or whatever, what this next year holds in store for you, friends. But if you are in Christ, 
There is no greater gift to be had than the grace of God, his affection, and his sympathy. We could go a sermon on all these four aspects here, but we don't have time. But just understand like that Paul is just highlighting the blessings found in Christ Jesus that are meant to stir our affections, that, are, that are, we're meant to see this and just cry out, thank you, God. Praise you, God. Thank you for your, for your mercy and your grace. Yet, in light of all the many blessings found in Christ, Paul seems to indicate that his joy is not complete. There, there is something that he's speaking to, to the Philippian church here, that is lacking. There is something weighing heavy on his heart. And it is that the Philippian church is not one-minded. There's a lack of one-mindedness that exists within the Philippian church. Therefore, Paul, he exhorts them, he says, he calls them to complete his joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one Mind. So he calls them to have the same mind. This, this kind of has the idea of having the same goal, having the same direction. We want, I, I want you headed in the same constant direction, that being the glory of Christ. To have the same love. This means to, to have the same passion, to have the same joy, to, to have the same desire which is the glory of Christ. And, and to be in full accord and of one mind, this is kind of like to have the same effort towards what? The glory of Christ. And what he's saying is that, that your lives and the direction of your lives and everything that you long for, not, not just specific individuals in the church, not just those who've been saved recently and they're kind of on this mountaintop experience, not just the elders, not just the men, not just seminary graduates, but it should characterize the body of Christ, a local church, that this is what it looks like. That together, they have the same mind, the same love, and they're, and they're working in full accord and of one mind for what? The glory of Christ. That's what it should look like. This isn't just the job of a select few, all right? And so I want us to understand Paul's logic here, okay? I want us to understand it. He's, pointing, he's talking about all of these things that Christ has done for us. And, and, and because of what Christ has done in us and for us, we should be essentially the most encouraging loving, affectionate, merciful, and overflowing with spiritual fruit types of people in the entire world. In other words, who we are in Christ, it changes us. Who we are in Christ, it should change us. We are not who we were before. We are, we are a new creation. It is not we who lives, but Christ who lives in us. And so, to Paul, to Paul, to have every great blessing that, that, that God could possibly bestow on us in Christ and to still be disunified, to still lack one-mindedness, it's preposterous. It is inconsistent. It is incoherent. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't make sense. 
How can we have encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, experience affection and sympathy from God, and lack one-mindedness? It makes no sense. And so his joy was seriously affected in hearing of the current situation with the Philippian church. Now, you might think that, that Paul is exaggerating. Surely Paul doesn't let a little disunity affect him to this extent. Like he's thinking of all these blessings that are in Christ and somehow his joy is affected. Well, I want us to understand this, that, that Paul here in Philippians 2, he's not scolding the Philippian church. He's, he's not scolding them. He doesn't, he doesn't really even rebuke them. Instead, see, you see the word that he's using in, in verse 2? Complete my joy. Complete my joy. Paul is appealing to the joy found in unity among God's people. He's appealing to joy. Church, when you think of, 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 of one-mindedness in the church, is joy what first comes to mind for you? You might think of like peace because you're like, oh, the boat's not rocking, relationships are a little better. That's fine. What about joy? What about joy? Not just a lack of conflict, but, but a group of people who are intent on one purpose, who have the same heart, who have the same joy. Do you think of joy when you think of unity among the church? Perhaps Paul was thinking of Psalm 133, 1 through 3, that reads, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. See, the Bible speaks of, of unity among God's people as a good and joyful Thing to be desired. You know, I think about this morning with my kids. It's kind of, Christmas morning is, is always fun. It's, it's kind of chaotic a bit when you have eight kids. But I, at the same time, there's a picture that, of, of, of a somewhat of a unity that I got to see. Each morning when, when, we, when we bring the kids down upstairs, I play a song and blast the song. We've done it for like 10 years now and like to the kids just, they come running down the stairs in unison, all intent on, on one purpose, and they're, they're going to receive their gifts and receive their blessings at that moment. And in that moment, I mean, it, granted, it doesn't last long, but there's this moment where there's just this excitement and hugging one another. Oh, I, I'm so excited at this gift that you got. Look what I got. That's awesome. And there's just this like, there's this unity there that exists. I mean, give it a few hours. Don't get me wrong. The unity is kind of like it wears off. But there's that moment of picture. I'm like, this unity is awesome. This encouragement is awesome. It is joyful. It's what makes me excited about Christmas morning. Or maybe you watched Argentina win the World Cup and you saw some of the, the, the video footage from, from them as they received this blessing of just people hugging and shouting and high-fiving and just, just strangers, that, but they, they just seem to love each other. See, we, we look at many different 
pictures of unity that are, that are rooted in far shallower things than are what we have actually in Christ Jesus. But the reality is, because of what Christ has done in us, that it should result in incredible, incredible unity and incredible, incredible joy. Church, we need to see joy and goodness when a body of believers is one-minded. We need to pray for that. We should celebrate that and pursue that with all of our hearts, church. Now, we might think this. We might think, amen. Amen, Brian. We need to be more one-minded in this place. That's exactly what we need. In fact, we'd be more one-minded around here if it wasn't for whatever you're thinking right now. If everyone would just get on board with my ideas, my beliefs, my desires, then we would be one-minded. Friends, the goal isn't that the church would conform to you. The goal isn't that the church would conform to me. The goal isn't that the church would conform to the elders. The goal isn't that the church would conform to some celebrity pastor, ministry fad, or trend. The goal isn't that the church would conform to the culture or to the government. The goal isn't that the church would conform to a vision or a mission statement. The goal is that the church would conform to their king that bought them and set them apart for his purposes, King Jesus Christ. That is our prayer. And so if we're going to pursue one-mindedness, we must understand one thing, point two. There is no one-mindedness without humility. There is no one-mindedness without humility. And so Paul, in verse three, he calls for each of us. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing. Do nothing. Not a single thing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do, do, you, do, you, do you grasp how absolute this statement is? It's all-encompassing. In your marriage, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In your job, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In your family, on the ball field, in the classroom, in public, in private, as the boss, as the customer. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But specifically in this context, especially and most important, in the local church, friends. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In other words, we are not to be people who are out for our own glory. We're not. We are not to be people who are all about us. We are not to be a people who are primarily out for our own comfort. We are not to be people who are primarily seeking our own preferences. Oh, but friends, we say that and we know that the, that the Bible says that. We can look here to book, chapter, verse, and we, and we can see that, and we can see that's what the Bible's saying. But this is not how we think about being a part of a local church in America in 2022. It's not. 
You see, we are programmed to think about church as consumers. That's typically what most people think about in America in 2022. What can I get out of the local church? Does this meet my preferences? Are there enough people my age? How dynamic is the children's ministry? Do I like the music? Do I like the preacher's personality? Does this body offer enough opportunities to highlight my specific skill set or gift? Or am I getting the praise that I think that I deserve? That's typically how we think of churches. Just another thing for us to consume. Just another thing to make much of us. Friends, there is no greater threat to the one-mindedness and unity of the church than a lack of humility among its people. Show me a church where one-mindedness and unity doesn't exist, and I will show you a church where there is likely a great lack of humility. Our individual lives, church, and our testimony corporately, Community Bible Church, I'm speaking to us this morning, should be characterized by humility. What do you think about when you hear the word humility? Perhaps you see humility as an attempt to simply think less of yourself. Okay, I, I, I just got to sit here and think less of myself. I, I need to think less of my talents, less of my gifts, less of my ability. So, so when somebody compliments me, you know, I'm going to do the best I can to downplay my skill, my gift, my ability, and even deny that, that, they, don't, that they even exist. Or, you know, you point to a thousand other people who are better than you are. That's not what it's talking about. Imagine the audacity if, if, if we complimented Mignon and Cherry on their cooking, which is amazing, by the way, for them just to be like, oh, we're not, we're, you know, we're not, we're not really good cooks. That is not what the verse is talking about. They are, they are incredibly good cooks. Amen, church? Yeah. And it's not just being self-deprecating either. It's not just simply saying, oh, I'm just constantly the worst. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. I just, that, that's not, that, that is not what humility is. Humility isn't about self-deprecation. Humility isn't about low self-esteem or deflecting comments and, and gratitude from others when it comes your way. In fact, humility isn't thinking less about yourself. Instead, Humility is thinking about yourself less. That's what humility is. And that's, that's how Paul is defining it here. You know, in fact, according to Paul, this is what humility looks like. Look at it, word for word here. That counting others more significant than yourselves. In fact, the significant, what, what it's better interpreted as, is counting others more important than yourself. That's what humility looks like. It's actually getting your mind off of yourself and thinking about other people more. Christian, this morning, how would it look to find true joy when others receive praise and you don't? How would it look to joyfully defer to someone else's opinion rather than always sticking with yours? How would it look to joyfully give your life to building up others rather than seeking to have your name built up? What would it look like to be a constant encourager of others rather than being a constant auditor of their shortcomings? This is what humility looks like. Counting others more significant than yourselves, but not only that, he says, not looking only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Church, what would it look like for you, you and your family, to be on your knees in prayer, praying for the interest and needs of others in the church long before you utter a word to God about your own interests? What would it look like to not ask how the church can meet your needs, desires, goals, and dreams, but that you are constantly asking how you can meet the needs, desires, goals, and dreams of others. This is countercultural to the way that we typically think in the church. You know, it, it reminds me of, of uh, JFK's inauguration speech. As, as, as John F. Kennedy was being inaugurated, it, where he was coming into a time in, in history where communism was, was being spread all throughout the world, and, and the threat of communism, communism was, was very threatening to uh, the citizens of the United States. And he says, he says this, he, and this is a famous quote, he says, in the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. We love that quote. There ain't an, uh, an American out there who doesn't love that quote. And, and the context of that, that, that quote is, is talking about something that, let's just be honest, isn't that important. Well, that's going to offend some of you. I'm talking about spreading d- democracy and, and political freedom throughout the world. Like, I'm a democracy guy. I'm a political freedom guy. I'm a conservative. But, like, that is so far less important than the mission of the church to spread the gospel and take the gospel to all nations, to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What a greater mission. What a far more important mission. And, and, and if we're gonna if we're gonna do that, if we're gonna do that as a church, we must be one-minded. And if we're gonna be one-minded, we must be humble. And, and so I, I would I would as as JFK exhorted Americans to this other mission, I, I want to exhort us this morning in, in the sense that like ask not what your church body can just constantly do for you. Ask how you can serve your church body. Ask how you can serve your church family. Put their needs before yours. Think about them far more than you think about you. And notice that humility isn't just something that happens to us. It isn't something that simply that we simply accept when it comes our way. That's how we often think about humility, as being humbled. In other words, we may not get the job that we dreamed about, and it humbles us. We may not get the ministry opportunity we dreamed about, and it humbles us. Our health may fail us, and it humbles us. We experience marital, financial, and reputational ruin, and it humbles us. Friends, we don't simply accept humble circumstances when they come our way. Instead, Humility is something that we actively strive for and that we pursue. Humility is a pursuit. It's what we're striving for as the church. Why? Why? Why are we striving for this? Let's look at Paul's rationale. Point three. 
Christ is our example and source of humility. Christ is our example and source of humility. We pursue humility because Christ pursued humility. Christ pursued humility. The primary reason we are called to biblical humility is because humility is what most characterized the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. As God's image bearers, we were created to image God. Christian, do you understand that is God's will and desire for you? To be an image bearer. To be an image bearer. Your life and all that you say and all that you do is meant to point to the glory of God. You understand that? In the workplace, in the grocery store, on the ball field, in your family, God's will for you, the reason he created you, is to be his image bearer. And so if we are to to be an, an image bearer of God, what does it look like? Well, if we, if we want to be like Christ, then we will pursue humility and we will look to Christ. You might, you might, be, you might be thinking, Brian, this, this selfless pursuit of humility is impossible. You have zero clue how selfish I am, how self-absorbed that I am, how much that I, I, I never think about anybody else but myself, how much I complain. And I would say, amen, friend. You could never do this on your own. You could never do this on your own. You see, Paul doesn't call us to take inward inventory of ourselves or, and pick ourselves up by our bootstraps here. He doesn't even call us to work harder. He calls us to look to Christ. Look to Christ. This is verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's pointing straight to Christ. And and as as, as we look to Christ, we see this, that although Christ was worthy of infinite glory, he found the most joy in giving rather than demanding his rights. You see this? That though he was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Do we realize that the the incarnate Christ, that Christ, he he left the throne. But think about that. Christ was with, with the Father, second person of the Trinity, fully God for all of eternity past. No beginning. There was no beginning of the second person of the Trinity. You, you, You understand that? No, you don't, because I don't either. It, it just, but it's true. He, he is eternal. And he existed in all of eternity in glory and splendor and full deity. And he left the throne, Christian, where the angels and the elders, they sat around the throne, praising him and glorifying him and giving him the glory that is due him all the time. That is all that existed. He left that perfection. He came and he became a man. Fully man. Fully God. He put on flesh to dwell among us. 
And, and as he put on flesh, I mean, have we not studied the gospel of, of Luke for the past two and a half, maybe three years? Has Christ been getting the glory that is due him? No. He came and he, I mean, all he has is people who, who, who rebuke him and, and want to kill him. He left. He left heaven for that. He was not getting what was due him. But yet he found joy to leave the throne to make atonement for our sin. That is our Lord and Savior, friends. He is a giver. Primarily, he is a giver. He's not a taker. And he left the throne, as, as Paul says here, to become a servant for us. The king took the form of a servant. I mean, just, does, does, does your mind and your heart just ponder how that could be? We don't see politicians do that. No, they're all about me, 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 me. But God did that. God did. The God that spoke the world into being, friends. He became a servant. That is our God. He's being born in the likeness of men. He didn't come down as a he didn't come down as a full-grown adult. He was a, a, a baby, and he was a baby in every sense. A baby is a baby. You know, he, he had to learn to go to the bathroom, and he had to learn to eat. And he, I mean, he was a real man, a real child. This is what Christ did for us. He was tempted like we are tempted. Everything that you've experienced in life, the second person of the Trinity left the throne to experience for us, yet was without sin. And he endured this, as Paul says in Philippians 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As I've said many times as I've helped preach through the Gospel of Luke, that as Christ came, his life was nothing more but a downward descent. I mean, it was humbling to be a baby, but then as the older he got, it was nothing more than a downward, downward descent to the cross. Where he was suffered, and he was rejected, and he was crucified to make atonement for our sin. To his, for his enemies, for people who shouted at him, for people who rejected him, for people that hated him, and i.e. that's all of us here. That is what he did. He humbled himself all the way to death. His life was not taken. He gave up his life. He was not captured against his will. It was the Father's will to send him and to die and to pour out his wrath upon the Son. For us. And Christ didn't just endure it willingly, he endured it, as Hebrews says, joyfully. He did. 
But notice what Paul says here. He didn't just die even death on a cross. The type of death that he took for us was the most despicable, painful, humiliating, and shameful deaths that he possibly could have taken. It wasn't quick. It wasn't private. There was no dignity as Christ bore our sin on the cross. He left the throne to do that. Friends, this is the story of Christmas. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Christ humbling himself so that we may have life. If the manger shows us anything, it shows us this. It shows us the humility of Jesus Christ. When we gaze upon Christ, it should produce in us hearts that desire humility. It should also remind us that if we are in Christ, Christ lives in us and he is our source of humility as well. Our humble God that we gaze upon through the life of Luke. Do you understand that that spirit lives inside of us? That we don't have to walk in arrogance and pride and self-absorption? That we can be like Jesus because his spirit lives in us, church. Yes, we, all, we often succumb to sin and pride. We all do. I, I, how, how can I preach this? Ask my wife. I mean, if that's why, ask everyone in the room. I'm the chief of struggling with pride and arrogance and self-absorption. Oh, thank you for the grace of God. Thank you that he provides his spirit so that we can repent. If you're, if you're here this morning and you're just saying, this is true of me, I am self-absorbed, I'm arrogant, I'm prideful, I don't think about anybody. I, I am so contrary to being an image bearer of Christ. Look to Jesus, friend. Repent of your sin. Repent of your sin and walk. Walk in obedience. But point four and finally, the glory of God is the ultimate goal of humility. The glory of God is the ultimate goal of humility. In this ironic turn of events, as Paul writes about here in Philippians, because of Christ's humility, the Father exalted him. You see, because of what Christ did, he was given the name that is above every name. Because of Christ's humility, every knee will bow before him. Because of Christ's humility, every tongue will acknowledge him in his full glory. In fact, friends, Christ's name forever is not servant. Christ's name forever is Lord. He is king. He is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy to be praised and understand this, friends, that Christ will receive every bit of glory that is due him. You understand that? He will receive all of it. Yes, he's come in the form of a servant, and yes, he get laid down his life for us, and yes, he did not take what was due him, but friends, he 
will not forego one ounce of glory. He will receive all that is due him. All. Every knee. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul says every knee. Heaven, earth, and under the earth. Every knee will bow. Every knee. You see, friends, the manger, is, as, we, as it points to the humility of Christ, it is also a picture of the glory of Christ. We see that, that, that manger scene in Luke chapter 2, and yes, we see this hum, these, these humble circumstances, but we also see what the angels, myriads of angels, saying glory to God in the highest. Glory to God. See, I heard a very well-known local preacher recently proclaim on, on, on Instagram. He said that we are the reason for the season. We are the reason for the season. I don't know what you think about that. While the love of Christ for us was on display, friends, as he put on flesh and dwelt among us, we were not the primary reason that Christ put on flesh and dwelt among us. Christ was most concerned with the glory of God. The glory of God was Christ's biggest concern. And we are the benefactors of that. Friends, we are not the reason for the season. The glory of God is the reason for the season. Friends, the primary message of Christmas as we close this morning is the glory of God through the humility of Christ. The glory of God is why we were created. The glory of God is why we Christians were saved. The glory of God is what we are to be the same mind about. The glory of God is to be our greatest love. The glory of God is to be our biggest pursuit. And so we, as we gaze upon our humble king today, may he strip us of any sense of pride. May he strip us of any sense of arrogance, self-exaltation, self-glory, selfishness, critical spirits, and any other attitude that seeks to make much of ourselves and to make little of Christ. May we desire with all of our hearts to be biblical image bearers of Christ and to be humble like our King, Jesus.